As was already mentioned, indeed, we have the privilege of coming together on this occasion of worship on this rather chilly Lord's Day morning, but rather we appreciate the warmth of both fellowship with ourselves as well as with God as we come together today. We certainly hope that things are well with each one and that those who have been mentioned already today and listed on our sick list will soon experience an improvement in their health, be able very, very quickly to be back with us or about the activities of life that they would so much like to pursue. As you might have noticed in the bulletin, as we made note of the title for the lesson this morning, perhaps again a bit of an unusual one in that our subject shall be that of biblical silence. We think about the word silence as meaning when quietness prevails, when there is no sound or no particular thing to be stated, and we shall find in a very real way that is the matter related to the lesson this morning. In fact, by way of introduction, I would ask you to share with me or at least think about some of the following concepts. We just prayed a few moments ago about the grandeur and wonder of the Word of God. How that it is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119 verse 105. How that it is the only inspired thing that we have. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That statement that closes 2 Timothy 3 reminds us of how the Holy Spirit provided this by the very nature of the will of heaven. For is it not true, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue? To note some of those passages, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, perhaps moves us in the direction of seeing the instruction that's ours by virtue of the Word of God. As we open its wonderful pages, use that to permeate our life, we understand that we can live in accordance to it, and in so doing, live pleasingly to our Heavenly Father. It goes without saying that a cursory or haphazard reading of the Scriptures is not sufficient. Just as surely as the Bible is the revealed will of heaven, you and I must study it. That is, to give diligence to a pursuit of its truth, to give earnest effort to an appreciation and mastery of the subjects contained therein, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That statement that Paul uttered to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 sets before us the challenging charge of the very subject that's before us this morning. I make use of these texts to start our lesson to remind us that this is the only infallible guide that we have. But now the question comes, in what way does God, through this word, give instruction to you and me? In what way does He reveal His will such that you and I can understand and interpret it? It turns out that biblical silence is one of the most controversial subjects in the world of religion. In fact, for centuries it has been the major dividing point that has caused individuals to go separate ways in terms of the Scriptures. In our Wednesday night study, we noticed that Luther, in fact, held to one view on biblical silence, whereas Vingley held to another, and never the twain shall meet. I wonder, when it comes to biblical silence, does the Bible define the proper view toward it? And if so, what is it? That shall be our charge. That shall be our mission this morning. May I submit to you that one of the first things that would be wise would be to clearly define in our mind what is this problem all about. 
when we speak the words biblical silence, what does that mean? Once we've identified the problem, then we'll turn our attention to letting the Bible answer it for us. With that said, would you then turn with me and define the problem by using these statements, these concepts. We're well aware that throughout the entirety of human history, God has revealed His will to the human family in a variety of ways. In this Christian era, it's very simply the nature of His Word. But regardless which era in history one might consider, there are times, and it's this situations, in which God has given to us His will in directly positive statements. In essence, you shall or you must do something. I've listed some examples. In Genesis 6 verse 14, To Noah God said, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. That was a positive statement that Noah needed to comply with if he was to be pleasing unto God. Build an ark. We remember that there were various other descriptions of that ark. It was to be three stories, pitched within and without. It was, in fact, to have all the characteristics that God had described. But notice, it was a positively stated command. Noah had to do something. In the Christian era, the one in which you and I live, in Romans 12, verse 9, the inspired apostle said, Let love be without dissimulation. We learned last Lord's Day that let us phrase is the equivalent of a commandment. You and I must love without dissimulation, meaning without hypocrisy. There is no room for a feigned love in the kingdom of our Savior. We must love genuinely. That means God, one another, the nature of His Word, the Lord Himself. Love must be real and genuine. Thus, two very directly, positively stated commandments. But there's other means by which God has revealed what His will is, and sometimes that is in the form of a negatively stated command. That is, there are some things we must not do. In other words, thou shalt not. In Exodus 20, verse 15, we see one example in the law of Moses when God said, Thou shalt not steal. Very easily understood statement, isn't it? If these people, the Hebrews, were to abide and live in accordance to the plan of heaven and thus to be pleasing to Him, one of the activities which was to be no part of them was stealing. Thou shalt not steal. That isn't that difficult to understand, is it? Notice in the New Testament that same form of statement is also made in passages such as Hebrews 10.25. We looked at that briefly last Lord's Day morning, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Thus, we aren't to willfully forsake the assemblies. We see that in these two instances, it is not difficult to understand what God has said. In the former case, we are to do what that positive statement has indicated. In the second one, we are not to do what He says we must not do in those negative statements He has made. The subject for the lesson this morning, though, is what about those particular ideas and those specific activities that he has not addressed? That is, those on which the Bible is silent. It is not at all difficult for us to understand how to approach these situations when he has said what to do and what not to do. But through the centuries, there has been much question about how should we approach those activities for which the Bible doesn't say. 
Well, today, let us see how the Bible will help us understand what we should do. For God has, in fact, not left us silent on that point. Just to emphasize the idea before us, let me list some examples. Now, here are four examples on which the Bible is absolutely silent. And yet, we find ourselves needing today to come to an understanding of how to answer it. What about a meeting for assembly on Monday night? Many of us could maybe give very reasonable reasons as to why that could happen. What if a person is sick on Sunday, but is sufficiently better by Monday, and they think, well, God certainly would wish for me to meet. Why can't I meet on Monday night and take the Lord's Supper and to give and to do the other things in worship? Is that not all right? Surely God would have no problem with that, right? Well, we'll answer that shortly. Maybe another example. Surely God would desire us to build up the treasury of the church. And surely He would want us to use those funds appropriately for benevolence, for edification, for evangelism. So why don't we as the Pippin congregation bring some things together and have a yard sale? Put that money into the treasury. Would that be a poor idea? Surely God would have no problem with it, right? We'll answer that again in just a few moments. Or in the third case, at least in my household, we very much like peach cobbler. What would be wrong with putting peach cobbler and milk as the elements for the Lord's Supper? God hasn't said not to. Surely there would be no problem with that, right? We'll answer that in a minute. As the final example, what if we were to raise the issue would there be any difficulty whatsoever with rolling a harpsichord or a piano into this room and using it in the accompaniment as Randall leads us in singing? Would there be any problem with that? Surely, as long as it was a mere aid to our singing, God would have no problem with that. Right? We'll answer that again in just a few moments. But might I emphasize that in all four of those examples, issues that are very relevant, or relevant are brought before us and what's more, there's much discussion and controversy about them. What do we say in answer? Notice again, nowhere in all the Bible does God say anything about meeting on the second day of the week. Well, since He has said not to, are we at liberty to do it? Nowhere in all the Bible is the word yard sale found. So are we at liberty to have one if we want to? Nowhere in all the Bible is the phrase peach cobbler to be found. Does that mean that we can, if we so choose, employ that as one element of the Lord's Supper and feel free to think that God shall bless that accordingly? Nowhere in all the Scriptures do we appreciate the usage of a piano or any other mechanical instrument in the worship service. But because He has said He has not mentioned it in that way, are we at liberty to do it? The questions have been good ones. Now it's time to see what God's answer is. May I suggest, let's build up our answer piecewise. First, let's develop the principle of biblical silence. What should always be the approach when the Scriptures are silent on a given matter? If we develop what that approach is, all of these will be answered rather easily and rather readily. Thus, what is this approach? Let's begin in the Old Testament. As we do that, we will move at some point into the New Testament, but let's see if we can begin to see the uniform principle of biblical silence and how it presents itself in the Word of God. As we turn back the clock 
Let me begin by quickly stating the scriptures do answer this matter. It is not left to human enterprise to figure out what the principle of biblical silence is and what the answer to it ought to be. The Bible tells us what that answer is. First, in the Old Testament, in the 10th chapter of Leviticus, the opening two verses to that chapter, there is a monumental occurrence that occurred, of course, under the law of Moses. But if we can rightly divide that passage and come to understand the principle as it was employed then, that might be a strong clue as to how it should be interpreted still today. In fact, at that point, we remember that Nadab and Abihu were the two, two of the four sons of Aaron, and they, at that time, were those who officiated in the offering of the various sacrifices and incense offering to God. The text simply tells us this. Nadab and Abihu came to that time of offering on a particular occasion, but this they chose to do. It says they offered strange fire, which he, namely God, commanded them not. If ever there was an example in the Old Testament of a case when biblical silence would prevail, this surely would be it. For it directly says, He commanded them not. Never had God stated anything about Nadab and Abihu or any other priest offering the fire of incense in the way that they chose to do it. The Bible was completely silent on that subject. We thus here have a clear-cut case of the principle of biblical silence. Let us notice thus what had occurred. God had made known to Nadab and Abihu the proper protocol for offering the incense offering. They chose to do it differently by offering fire which he had never commanded. How did God respond? Notice there's only two options. Either God was satisfied and approved the offering that they made, namely the fire which he had never given command for, or he was displeased with that and punished them accordingly. Let us notice verse 2. After the statement of what Nadab and Abihu had done, verse 2 says, And fire came out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Two times, notice it says, the Lord was involved in this. They died before the Lord. The Lord sent out this fire. In what way did God respond to this biblical silence concept? It's clear cut and easy to see, isn't it? He did not accept this part upon them of going beyond that which he had declared. Because God had not commanded fire to be offered in that way, that was not to be done that way. Biblical silence was prohibitive. Biblical silence was restrictive. We've seen one example. I wonder if there are others. Are there ever instances in which we can gain other appreciations of this? Let us look a little further. After we look at this second one, we will try to summarize our Old Testament conclusions. With regard to the Ark of the Covenant, we well remember that was a very important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It was that chest of set dimensions, fashioned in gold. Furthermore, it had upon it the mercy seat, wherein God met with His people. With regard to that Ark of the Covenant, in what way was that piece of furniture to be moved? In what way was it to be carried or borne along? Was it to ride on the back of a donkey? Was it to ride on a cart? Was it to be dragged on the ground? 
the Bible does say that in that chest there were staves and it was to be carried. Who was to carry it? The Levites, Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. In other words, no other tribe of Israel had the approval of God, it would so seem, to move that Ark of the Covenant except the Levites. However, God even went a bit further. In the fourth chapter of Numbers, it was only one of the families of the tribe of Levi that were able to move it. It was the family of Kohath. But now, might we say, on this occasion, God had given a commandment. The Levites were to move it. He did not say, though, that the family of Reuben could not move it. He never said that the tribe of Judah could not move it. He never said that the tribe of Issachar, Zebulun, or any of the others could not move it. All he said was the Levites were to move it. What then is the conclusion? Could the others legitimately move it? God never said anything about it. The Bible answers that question. In 1 Chronicles 15, verse 2, Centuries later, we have this inspired commentary. David himself, the king of Israel, said none but the Levites were able to move it. Notice, that means it was exclusive. That means that no other except Levi, though God never said anything about Dan, Reuben, Simeon, or any of the others, only the Levites could move it. That means that they were forbidden to do so. Biblical silence one more time was restrictive. It was forbidding in character. Notice so far can we not say that God seems to rest strongly upon positive authorization for what he has declared. No person ever, including Noah, was able to go beyond what he had said with his blessing. So far in terms of restriction, both examples have been of that vein. Might we ask about the New Testament? That is the law, of course, under which we live today. Let us look carefully at some New Testament texts and see what the principle of biblical silence is under our era and for you and me living today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we encounter a passage that was written, of course, by the inspired writer. And as he wrote this to that church in Corinth, we are certainly aware that that congregation was beset with problems difficulties and misunderstandings. And throughout these 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, they were admonished to repent and admonished to make things proper and right. But an interesting text is found here in the heart of chapter 4. I would ask you to read with me verse 6 of that chapter. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos, for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. The American Standard Translation perhaps makes that even far easier for you and me to easily appreciate. Notice again the wording in that translation would read as follows. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes that ye might learn in us not to go beyond that which is written. With regard to what was written, Paul laid great emphasis upon it. And to those in Corinth, they were expressly told, you must not go beyond that which is written. What is the clear implication? That what is written forms a boundary. What is written is the entirety of what confined within it, we are at liberty with God's blessing to do. 
And if we step beyond it, whether by doing that which is, of which the Bible is silent or by directly transgressing that which God has said, we have violated the will of heaven. One more time, biblical silence is restrictive. It's prohibitive. Corinth, as we well remember, was a city known for its progressive thinking, known for its up-to-date standards, and yet Paul warned that church, you must never go beyond that which is written. For the people of Corinth in the ancient era, and for the people in our day, this book forms an ironclad fence that identifies within it what God deems acceptable, what God approves, what heaven shines its blessed glory upon. And if we step beyond it, regardless whether it's due to our overt sinfulness, or whether we, by our progressive thinking, think that we can actually go into the realm of biblical silence and do that which God has not spoken about, we transgress His will. Not to go beyond that which is written. Is it not easy to see yet again that that upon which the Bible was silent was not approved? How about a second example in the New Testament era? This one again draws upon an Old Testament case. It's found in the heart of the book of Hebrews. One of the sections in Hebrews speaks so beautifully about the nature of Jesus, our King and our Priest. In that comparison, might we remember the, in the Old Testament, a priest officiated in offerings. As he came to the altar, he would in fact slit the throat of that animal and make all the various offerings that God had commanded concerning it. But the Hebrew writer makes a very interesting statement both in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, and in particular verse 4 of chapter 8, something interesting is said about Jesus himself. I would ask you to read that verse with me. Hebrews 8, verse number 4. For if he were on earth, and the he, of course, is Christ, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. The point the Hebrew writer makes is somewhat easily understood, at least from one perspective. He is arguing that just as surely as the law of Moses had a priesthood, and it was of the family of Levi, the Hebrew writer says if he, namely Jesus, were currently upon earth, even he could not be a priest. Why is that? Was Jesus of the tribe of Levi? Was his descendancy through that tribe and that family? It was not. In verse 14 of chapter 7, we learn rather directly that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And what's more, the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke affirm the same. But now, here's the point for our lesson, isn't it? In the Old Testament, God had said that the priests were to be of Levi. Had He ever said that it was not to be of Judah, that it was not to be of Reuben, that it was not to be of Simeon, not to be of Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, or the others? No. Never once had anything been said about that fact. But yet, what, did, what was God's intent? Jesus, though of the tribe of Judah, could not be a priest under the law of Moses. One more time, biblical silence is restrictive. It's prohibitive. Even the Lord, the very descendant through the tribe of Judah, could not officiate as priest because God had never authorized those of Judah to function in that way. Four times now we've seen these examples, and four times the conclusions have been the same. Where God has not authorized, that activity is forbidden. 
there's one more. In fact, there's one more I should say that we shall study. The Bible lists other instances, and the one that we shall yet consider is the text that we read earlier in the course of our, of our service this morning. In 2 John, verses 9 through 11, upon reading this one, we will then draw some rather significant conclusions. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. Neither bid him God speed, for he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. This warning was, of course, from the pen of the inspired apostle John. And as he made this statement, he wrote this to that lady named Kyria. And as he wrote this letter of Second John in its brevity, he had this rather severe warning. Verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth, that word transgresseth in the Greek means to go beyond, to go ahead of, and hence John says, anyone that goes ahead of or goes beyond the doctrine of Christ. Notice, does he say that person is blessed? Does he say that person is favored by God? No. He says that person doesn't even have Christ. That person doesn't have God. That person not only is not blessed, but stands without and stands apart from the blessings of heaven and all that it has to offer. It's a fair thing to see that this text, by usage of that phrase, go beyond, or to go ahead of, or to proceed in front of, or to lead, that directly means that you and I can't think that we're ahead of Christ and lead into places that he hasn't authorized. No man has that prerogative. Rather, we see that in verse number 9, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Again, an indication of a well-defined boundary that we abide in it. Not that we step beyond it in the realm of biblical silence, for that's not approved. Not that we overtly transgress it, for surely that isn't approved either. Notice then that when the Bible is silent on something, meaning that it does not approve it, then you and I are not at liberty to think that God approves of that matter or of that activity. These lead us to note the following fact. This fact also will allow us to answer those questions that we raised earlier. Here is the fact. Once God has specified something, all other possibilities are condemned, every one of them. For example, when God said to Noah it's to have three stories, that meant it couldn't have two, it couldn't have four, it couldn't have half a dozen. Three was God's will and all other options were excluded. In that case, with regard to the carrying of the Ark of the Covenant, when God said the Levites are to carry it, he didn't have to say that all the others must not. His positive statement was enough to eliminate all other possibilities. In that New Testament example, when God has made statements, just as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, do not go beyond what's written, that eliminates all other possibilities. With regard to the questions that we raised, the first one that we had listed as an example, what about a meeting on Monday night to take the Lord's Supper and give as we've been prospered? Nowhere does the Bible mention anything about a meeting on the second day of the week for that purpose. But now we've learned what the principle of biblical silence means. 
because God has nowhere authorized it, that means he condemns it. Furthermore, what has he said? In Acts 20, verse 7, when the disciples came together upon the first day of the week to break bread, notice they met on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, when on the first day of the week they gave as they'd been prospered, God has said what day we are to meet for that purpose. That excludes all others. We're not to meet on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday for those purposes. They are forbidden by the principle of biblical silence. Or what about the second case? The providing of funds for the treasury of the church. Notice again, many good reasons some might wish to provide. Should we not want that treasure to be as large as possible? Should we not desire to build it up to maximum amount so that we can supply more preachers or do other good works? Might we notice what has God authorized? In all the New Testament, only one means is, is described for the inclusion of the treasury. It's the free will offering of the saints. Mentioned not only in 1 Corinthians 16, but also in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so now, what is our conclusion? Are we at liberty to have a rummage sale, a yard sale, a bake sale? No, we're not. Because of the principle of biblical silence. God has specified the manner in which the church is to be funded. And we are not at liberty to go beyond what he has said. It is not our desire, it is not our prerogative to make other choices and to proceed in other ways. Thirdly, we raise the matter of the Lord's Supper. I particularly use the examples of milk and peach cobbler. Maybe that's some of the favorites of your family too. But might we notice there is a fundamental principle here. Nowhere in the New Testament does he ever say you must not use peach cobbler and milk. He doesn't ever say you must not use chocolate gravy and biscuits. But does he have to say that? No, he doesn't. Because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all four instances, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, he's told us what he did authorize. Unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. That means all other things are eliminated. Every other possibility is thus discounted. He has told us what he wants, and that is enough. In three instances, this biblical silence principle has been rather direct, hasn't it? It's led to straightforward answers. Maybe the last one. And I should be quick to say that this last one has been a problem in the church for centuries. In fact, we all know the matter that, dis that distinguishes today the Christian church from the church of Christ. One of the main matters is the inclusion of mechanical instruments of music. They will stand and defend the practice. We ardently oppose it. Notice, nowhere in all the New Testament does God say, do not use a violin, do not use a drum, do not use a piano. That's not there anywhere. But here's the, here's the matter. By the principle of biblical silence, what has he said? And according to this principle, given that all other options are thus eliminated, what he has said must be the only approved thing. Let us notice what he has said. In Ephesians 5 verse 19, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, if I may emphasize that word, singing, and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Thus, there is no mention of an instrument. That music that is to be made is vocal. It's singing. By this principle of biblical silence, thus all other mechanical options are outlawed. They are not approved in the sight of heaven. 
It is a sad thing that some seem to feel that the choice of a mechanical instrument, for example, is just purely one of personal preference. Some congregations like it and some don't. That is not the reason that we do not have a mechanical instrument of music. It's not up to personal preference. It is God's decree through the principle of biblical silence. He has stated singing and all other options are thus not allowed. In Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That's twice. Six more times in the New Testament, singing is mentioned. Not once is a mechanical instrument discussed. By the principle that we've discussed this morning, that matter is now settled, isn't it? As well as any other thing that involves biblical silence. Could we not perhaps summarize or conclude our lesson this morning in these words? There's no question that this principle of biblical silence is one of the most far-reaching and powerful principles anywhere found in the world of religion. And for a good reason. We should understand that we live 20 centuries after the New Testament was written. The things of society change. The specific matters of technology and what men and women can do are able to change. But those bedrock principles that are satisfactory to the God of heaven are forever etched in the Word of God and the principle of biblical silence will not allow them to be changed, period. Thus, have we not learned this morning in terms of conclusions that in every age of time God's rule concerning biblical silence is this. What He has authorized in His Word, He fully approves. But whatever He has not authorized, it doesn't matter what reasons man may give for pursuing it, it is not to be pursued. For God condemns it if He does not authorize it. Biblical silence is restrictive, period. These five examples that we've seen, two in the Old, three in the New Testament, forever remind us that God's plan of salvation is positively stated. We are not left to wonder what must be done to be a member of the body and to be able to walk on the golden road that leads to heaven. We need to hear the wonderful Word of God, Mark 4.24. We need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8.37. We furthermore need to repent of our sins, Acts 2.38. We need, in fact, to confess His wonderful name, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And we need to be baptized, 1 Peter 3, 21. This morning, if there be one or more that hasn't done that, don't think that biblical silence allows us to optionally remove any of that. It's an absolute requirement. Furthermore, the specifics of our life and faithfulness to God are required as well. If you've become a Christian but haven't been true and faithful to that calling, Understand that just as Simon did in the 8th chapter of Acts, you too can come back to your first love. We could pray on your behalf for God to forgive you those sins. You could be reinstated to a position of faithfulness. This morning, if we may be of assistance to anyone in your public obedience to the gospel, will you not let, the, let be known while together we stand and while we sing?